Welcome to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast, a show that features backgrounds, reviews, and reflections of some of the most influential movies ever made. And now your hosts. everyone, and welcome back to the Old Soul Movie Podcast. Today, we have an extremely special episode. I am joined by our guest, Christiana Benson, the Westmore family historian, and I am just so excited. So actually, let me start down the path of how I got interested in doing a Westmore episode. So I am familiar with the Westmores, right? I'm, you know, one of those people that watches the names on the credits and I look at the costume designer and the hair and the makeup. I've seen the Westmore names so often. However, I didn't really know too much about them. I just know that it was a makeup family dynasty in Hollywood. Um, So cut to this past January when we got the wonderful request to cover The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And we were so impressed with the makeup. And I remember looking at it and Purse Westmore did it. And I was just in awe. I'm like, wow, I really feel like I need to learn more. Not too long after, um, I follow Alicia Silverstone on Instagram and her makeup was just gorgeous in one of these pictures she posted. And I followed the makeup artist link and then I went to this makeup museum link and then I found Christiana's information. Like, oh my gosh, I just, I have to get in contact with her. So I am so excited to have you on today and learn all about your family. Oh, well, I'm excited to be here with you, Emma. This is so exciting. Thank you for inviting me on the Old Soul Movie Podcast. Yes, I'm absolutely thrilled. So tell us about yourself. How did you become the Westmore Family Historian? Well, it's a funny story. So I, um, I have three kids. They're They're all grown now. I lived through it. (laughs) They are 25, 20, and uh, just turned 18. So two girls and a boy. And after my middle daughter was born, I was at home with her nursing this baby. And I kept on thinking, gosh, I should be, I should know something else about my family. What I knew is probably just slightly more than what you were talking about um, just a few minutes ago is um, I have knowledge. My father was in the military. So I had grown up with this one book. It was called Beauty, Glamour, Personality, and it was written by Ern Westmore and his brother, Bud. And that's all I knew. And I would sit and study that book and do the exercises religiously in the book. Every makeup trick I learned from reading um, those pages. And I just, I read the words off the book pages. Um, but I kept on thinking to myself, I should know more to give to my children. I mean, this legacy had been left me and I I should know more about it. So, uh, I reached out to my mom and I said, I typed in Westmore, just the name on this webpage and it was newspapers.com and probably (laughs) hundred thousand articles came up with the Westmore name. And I didn't just see Bud and Ern's name, I saw six different Westmore names and it blew my mind because I thought, oh my gosh, I need to know more. And I probably didn't sleep for a good 72 hours. And I was just researching my brains out. So I couldn't stop. I was insatiable and I had to know more about the family. And one thing led to the other. And I read a million articles, it seems. And, uh, and that's how it all got started. From there, I was able to write, um, a request then for a, a star on the walk of fame for my family. And so that was about 2004 by 2008. Then our star was awarded right on the corner of Hollywood and vine. Oh my gosh. That is so cool. You did that. That's awesome. My project from start to finish. It was so much fun. Um, I, I met so many people that way that that project actually opened up so many doors for me. But what I found was that any one person, you can be limitless in anything that you do and want to achieve. And I definitely had my heart set on just educating and, and teaching about my family history. And the more I learned, the more I thought I have to share. And if I keep it all to myself, it would have done no good. So I set out on this plan that one day I would be in an Academy museum and <laughs> that, uh, came true as of last year. So I'm really excited. So cool. we have some, we've got some great partnerships with the makeup museum in New York city. 
Um, UCSB did a nice exhibit for my cousin, um, Michael. Oh, cool. And then we've done this uh, Academy Museum as well. So go visit next time that you're in L.A. Oh, absolutely. You can count on it. And we're so excited and grateful that you shared your family's story, at least for us. So let's get into it a little bit. For people that aren't familiar with the Westmore family, who did the Westmore family makeup dynasty consist of? And what was the film makeup industry department like at the beginning of the silent film era when movies were just starting to emerge? Sure. Well, we'll start off with my two times great-grandfather. That's George Westmore. He came overseas from the Isle of Wight and immigrated into the United States. Now his sons, um, Mont is the oldest. It's um, Monty or Montague was his name. So he's the oldest. And then we go to Person Earn, the twins. They're identical twin brothers. And Wally, Bud, Frank. Um, But I think what we don't talk about are the women. So Dorothy was a sister of theirs, um, and Dorothy was at Western Costume Company. And then they had a half-sister later on um, named Patricia, and Patricia was actually the hairdresser for Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, oh, my gosh. She was trained as a makeup artist, but she was also the hairdresser for Star Trek. Oh, my gosh. That is so cool. You know, I really wasn't as familiar with the the women makeup artists and artists in your family, so... That's really cool for me to hear. Definitely prolific work going on. So what was, I'm sorry, your great-great-grandfather, George? George. Okay, your great-great-grandfather, George. What got him interested in makeup? And how and when did he get his start in Hollywood? Well, he was a wig maker overseas in the Isle of Wight. And he, he certainly made uh, these powdered wigs for the Houses of Parliament. He came overseas, and as he went through Ellis Island, he moved to Canada. Um, We know that he immigrated down into Detroit and worked some time in New York, where he met an actress named Mary Astor. Yes! Mary Astor was one of those first silent screen artists, but I think when he was seeing movies in New York, that's the time that he's actually noticing this makeup is hard and garish and um, often inconsistent. So what he did for her when he met with her is that he um, mixed a little bit of pink eyeshadow with this uh, makeup base that she was using. It was probably something very similar to this. It was like a white makeup. Oh, so it would have been white, not like a... um, Oil and water, and you shake it up. Um, But it would have been really... It would have looked very hard on the skin. So he was trying to create a softer effect and um, highlights and shadows. For her, so he used a little pot, pots of rouge, and taught her how to do that then for film, um, and certainly made her wigs. Oh, cool! Um, when he moved to Pittsburgh, uh, we know that he worked as a dye maker. So I can look at the census records, and I can see he was a dye maker, and that he was also hand painting china. Um, but I think this is also where he's learning how to make the fine strokes how to do the detail work, and then learning an awful lot about color, being able to transition that into his hairdressing and wig making. So um, we know that he lived right next door to a playhouse where John Barrymore was actually working at the time. So we think that's his first entrance into having a connection with John Barrymore, later connecting with him when he did move to Pasadena in 1917. I think when he went to California, what his intention was, is that he was going to meet some of the filmmakers and say, I know how to do this better. Let me show you. If you just give me a a chance. So he had a few shots at some of the smaller studios like Triangle, where he came in, did the makeup, showed them the difference, what it looked like on film. A lot of the actors and actresses at that time were using wigs that were made out of straw. They were doing makeup themselves. And again, they have very primitive rouge and um, maybe black makeup, um, a a different kind of Stein's paste makeup. And... um, it didn't look consistent from, from scene to scene. And that's the difference that George made because he made actual makeup charts then and instituted that uh, within the movie industry before 
makeup and hairdressing had ever been established. So in doing that, working with these uh, smaller studios, he was able to establish the first makeup and hairdressing departments in the motion picture studios in, as early as 1917. That's incredible. I, I mean, it's just fascinating to me because it's such a staple in any sort of camera work that is done today to have the charts, to have the continuity pictures, to anything. So to think that that's when it started in 1917 is so amazing. And well, this is kind of off topic or like veering away a little bit, but you know, I don't know what the exact trends were for women in the, you know, 1910s, but I can imagine screen makeup would be different than whatever the fashion is or like, like theater makeup, right? It's very heavy. So I can imagine maybe that that's something that people would do naturally on screen when performing, but to then switch that. I don't know if that's right at all, but that's kind of what I'm picturing to <laughs> soften it up. And <laughs> if we really think about that time frame, like who wore makeup at that time? Mm-hmm. It was prostitutes and maybe an actress. Right, right. Um, um, there, there wasn't anything really that you could buy besides maybe a rouge in a drugstore. And it would have been seen as something very extravagant or expensive of the time and um, wasn't widely used. So most women aren't using mascara and powder and blush and lipstick, uh, pencils of any sort. So anything they were doing, it was maybe behind the scenes. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Okay. So you mentioned George's sons, right? We have Mont or Monty. Well, he goes by either Mont or Monty. Okay. uh, And then Ern, Purse, Wally, Bud, and Frank. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So what years did the Westmores work in during Hollywood? Sure. So we're talking about somewhere between 1917 and 1970. These guys, and there are others. I don't want to leave anybody else. Oh yeah. For mention anyone that I, I am just, (laughs) but these were the guys who started and established the makeup department and hairdressing department. These are the individuals who started the, um, the institution of having that within the makeup industry. So they set the standards and they also helped to train many of the other makeup artists of that time, which I think just is an interesting point. We don't talk about it an awful lot, but our family actually set up times with Max Factor at Max Factor Studios to help teach and train more of these male makeup artists. So mostly men were makeup artists and the women then were the hairdressers. Oh, overlap, um, until much later. Very interesting. So if they're, they're starting this, is this kind of going to be at one studio or are they kind of leasing out or freelancing their work to others? Yeah. So in the very, very beginning days of Hollywood, we're talking about the very early pioneering <laughs> But they're working as um, free agents and okay. they're, they're traveling from studio to studio. I think what happens is kind of similar to what happens now is that um, there are uh, actors who become attached to specific makeup artists mm-hmm. and or studios. And, and so you saw some of that. In the very beginning, Mont is associated with Selznick and he's associated with Buster Keaton Um but then you see um, Purse and Earn are at First National, which later becomes Warner Brothers. So before it becomes just Warner Brothers, it's First National Warner Brothers, and both brothers are there. Earn breaks off and goes over to RKO and becomes the department head at RKO Studios, leaving Purse over at First National Warner Brothers. And then Wally is at a place called Famous Players Lasky, which yes. later becomes Paramount. Later, we see Earn at 20th Century Fox. We see um, Frank associated with Paramount. He's working as an apprentice under um, Wally and under Purse and Bud's at Universal. Oh, Mike, that's all, that's all the big ones, <laughs> you know, that are really coming into prominence. So that's really incredible. I was curious because, you know, we have this star system and the stars with their contracts to certain studios. I was curious how it worked then with makeup artists and if it was the same, but that would kind of make sense if it's a relationship between the makeup artist and 
the actor actress. Yeah, I think if you look at each one of their careers, each one of them spent a good amount of time of their career, most about 25 to 27 years as department head at those major motion picture studio makeup departments. It's pretty amazing. That is. Would you say, okay, I don't know if this is something you know or not. This is just a question off the top of my head. Would you say that George, um, from what you know, was he pushing this sort of career for the family or was it something that was kind of naturally they saw their dad maybe working in this and developed an interest? George definitely was a tyrant. And (laughs) we have to think about the time that he came from. Um, He was one of 10 children himself. His father was a coal miner. I don't believe that his life was very easy before he left England. I don't imagine that it was very easy taking um, his entire family across the United States um, in the early 1910. Like, I can't imagine what that was like. Uh, He worked very hard and he did teach his children how to do the art of wig making. And um, he also taught them how they sat with him and painted China as well, as I see them on the census, which I think is really interesting. That's awesome. Uh, He did not give the twins a choice in the matter. And there's a story that circulates about them being actually chained to the table while he made sure that they learned how to do this art of wig making, which sounds really tragic. And that story makes me really sad. But in the end, it taught them this trade that they um, they seem to embrace and excel at. And later on, we see that Purse, um, one of the twins, actually then patents the special hair lace technique that was taught to him by his father. And he he's now trademarking the first commercial toupee to sold over at the Max Factor Museum. Whoa. <laughs> I like to point out that I think it's interesting. I think life is cyclical. So one of the things I found so interesting about the Academy Museum is that it is located where the May Company building is and right outside of Beverly Hills. So cool. Well, my family actually sold their commercial toupee at that May Company. So uh, it only makes sense that they're there when I found that out. Full circle. What an amazing connection. Okay. So I think you bring up a really good point. Cause I guess I was really thinking like makeup, makeup, makeup. I didn't realize how prevalent the wig making and hair styling was as part of their trade. But I think that brings us to a really important topic kind of in makeup. I think when we say, you know, makeup in films, people just think, oh, you know, like glamorous Marilyn Monroe or Audrey Hepburn, but we don't realize some of the special effects makeup or we, you know, we do, but we don't always bring that to the forefront of our mind. And I think that the Westmores really did a fantastic job. So did anyone sort of specialize in special effects sort of makeup or some of the more grotesque images that we see in movies? Sure. Well, you touched upon one of the greatest, <laughs> the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. What an amazing movie. But if you can imagine makeup at this time is extremely primitive and it's not like we can just go to the shop like Namie's and go and buy the products that we need and the special um, tools and kits that um, might become available to make our lives easier now. But right. what we're seeing at the time is like somebody going to the depths of their mind and, and using their full level of creativity to figure out how do I do this? So um, I'll use, for instance, this example of Wally doing the makeup for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So he's actually taking the pancake makeup, pressing it into the skin heavy. And then he takes an orange and he's going over the skin so he can actually create pores in the makeup. And you can just imagine he was probably like laying in bed one night thinking like, how do I do this? (laughs) More like skin on camera because this was like such a, 
an important close-up as you see the character changing into more of the monster man himself. So um, yeah, they're just experimenting and they're trying things. And what we do know is that they were actually also working with Max Factor and they're going to these meetings together and they're saying and working with other makeup artists. And it's almost like a think tank of that time where they're sitting and trying to figure it out and working with others and experimenting in their labs, of course, themselves. And they did something else I think is kind of interesting. And uh, you think about those plaster molds that they made of a lot of the faces of many of the actors and actresses of that time. So they did not have to be in the makeup chair for hours and hours. So they would practice on these plaster faces and create some of the molds that they needed to to create some of the characters. Again, it's just alleviating some of the time um, I'm sure that the studio wanted them to be considerate of time and money of individuals sitting in chairs. And um, <laughs> so always just trying to figure out a better way. Very, very innovative and creative. And, you know, most of them probably had like fourth or fifth grade education. So it's amazing that they learned something like this by themselves. I, for them all to have so much creativity in one family it's extraordinary. I'm blown away every time I see a new movie that I haven't seen before or find a new article that kind of explains something that they were doing. um, We definitely see them being pioneers in a lot of this uh, makeup and how they were using wires and gizmos to just morph the face, whether they be something like as simple as a frowny. Have you ever heard of a frowny? No, I don't think I have. It's a piece of tape. Um, maybe like a surgical tape and it has a string at the end of it. So like face tape, but different. But so what they would do is they would um, put it on the skin and then they would pull it tightly. So they might affix the ponytail towards the back of the skull. So it would be not seen. The hair is laid back over it, but it could pull the face in different ways to help again, just morph it. So the person, the actor would not be in so much pain and tortured for many hours sitting in makeup, but, um, but that they could have a different look. Maybe it's going to raise the eye in some way. That's really cool. I think you bring up a really good point. I mean, there's so much innovation, new techniques being introduced, and it is starting all in this one family. Do you have a favorite, like a personal favorite movie makeup moment from your family or one that really stands out to you or a technique that you find that's just like, wow, I can't believe that they came up with that. I think I get asked most about (laughs) burn in breakfast. (laughs) Everybody wants to know what was the color of her lipstick? And um, we have that discussion endlessly. And I wish I knew for sure we could certainly find that are very close. Um, and we also have to keep in mind that sometimes the film looks different too. Um, right. changes the color, but I'd have to say I'm most amazed by the work of Monty when he's working on Gone with the Wind because he's only working on Gone with the Wind at that time with limited resources. It's one individual <laughs> working on that film, Rebecca, and also <sighs> working on Mutiny on the Bounty. Wow, all at the same time. But I can't imagine then trying to make Vivian Lee's eyes appear more green on screen just from a phone call from the director, David Oselsnick, who calls him up in the middle of the night and says, you need to make her eyes look more green. She is supposed to be Irish. So He goes back to the studio the next day, and now he decides he's going to work with um, wardrobe and put her in a color that's very similar to what you're wearing today, (laughs) well, shade of green. So the light also, as it's reflecting into her eyes, that if he puts just a little bit of green eyeshadow on her eye, that um, she'll, uh, her eyes will appear more green. Her eyes were actually hazel, and they appear green throughout the whole movie. So that's 1935, 1935 that that movie is being filmed. 1937 is when it, um, when it was finished, but it's pretty, that's an amazing feat. I had no idea. I thought that her eyes were like, you know, a little bit like a greeny blue color. So that's amazing. And not only her, but I mean, there's 
a lot of moments in that movie. I mean, there's war going on and soldiers and he was part of all of that makeup. Right. Oh my gosh. And, and so film credit wasn't given at that time. So here's this epic film that I'm sure deserved an Academy Award for its makeup. And um, he, he wasn't recognized because makeup artists wouldn't be recognized until 1981. That when the first Academy Award for Best Makeup was given? Right. Oh, my goodness. If you think about great films that the Westmores have all worked on, including Breakfast at Tiffany's, right. or Casablanca, or Gone with the Wind, just to name a few, none have a, a, an Oscar for the family. Wow. You know, I know it's in spirit, but at the same time, that's, it's so tragic. Those are, you know, people that aren't as familiar with old Hollywood. Those are the movies that they, that everyone knows. It's in the cultural lexicon, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Breakfast at Tiffany's and beyond. So that's truly amazing. They're part of all of them. Do you find that some people, or how do I put this? Um, where, was there any information that you came across in your research that talked about what it was like doing the makeup for leading ladies or leading men and the challenges and maybe the, I don't know, exciting parts that came with doing that? Sure. The, the job of a makeup artist and hairdresser is probably one of the most intimate moments that you can have with an actor or actress. You really are in charge of the way they look and appear on screen, and they are at your mercy. But it's also, you spend endless hours with them in the makeup chair every single day but they're in charge of making sure that you look your very best or look the way that you should for the character part. I think with that intimacy comes um, a great deal of revelation. So you must learn an awful lot about working with an actor or an actress as they sit in your makeup chair and you're talking to them about probably some of the most vulnerable things about them. Like I'm worried about my gut or I'm worried about my hair. Can you hide my ears? Yeah. um, uh, Do something about my teeth here. And they would have to address a lot of that, but also again, just transforming someone. So I think when Purse works with Betty Davis and he says to her, trust me, I'm going to shave off your hair until the mid part of your skull. I'm going to shave off your eyebrows, but trust me, I'll make sure you'll be okay. It's a lot of trust. (laughs) And she does. And she works with him. And she works with him again. And she asks that he be written into her contract. Wow. Um, I think that's pretty amazing. I think what he did for her afterwards is even better. Because what he did is help set a trend by cutting bangs to help cover her forehead. And then we had this brand new trend of bangs being all the hit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and you, I just think, you know, enough credit isn't given to moments like that, where they've set the trend for the future. And uh, certainly movies were what everybody was exposed to. You're attending the movies and you wanted to go and be, uh, look like the actor or actress. And so that was your periodical or that, that was your magazine that you got for all the ideas. And, and, um, and so he created this whole new trend in the United States and all over the world with bangs. That's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's so normalized to me today that we see something and it becomes part of the, the fashion trends, the hair and makeup trends, like, you know, a big example of Rachel from Friends' haircut that creates right. this whole phenomenon. And to think that the Westmores were setting the precedent for that is just, unbelievable to me. Were there any other kind of big trends that they introduced to actors, actresses that just came across in films in general that became really popular amongst the general public? I think something that a lot of people don't know, and it's really not makeup, but um, Monty worked with Clara Bow on the movie It. And oh. he actually um, was told by the director, she's but she's bouncing around a little too much. So um, as the it girl, so he tapes her breast down and creates this whole flat chested flapper look that is becomes all the rage. 
Okay. That just blew my mind because I feel like there was, and again, like, and not that it's correct per se, but I think idealistic beauty standards with body shape, you know, patriarchal ways changes over time. But I feel like when I look at that time period, I felt like it was the norms for that flat chested flapper look. But to know that that was breast tape being used to cultivate that, that's incredible. Oh my gosh. Um, You know, we could talk about lip shapes and things like that, but you touched upon something I think is really important to point out is that the trends are set by this family. And um, some of it is, is something you would not even know. Again, you're not seeing their name on screen. There's isn't an article to support that, um, but it's far reaching. So it's not just film, it's television, and then it's worldwide. So by 1935, these brothers had worldwide acclaim. And uh, these makeup and hairdressing trends that are set forth in the movies, again, as movies, more people are attending more movies. And uh, this is where everybody is learning how to do hair and makeup. And it's through this family. Wow. So are there any noteworthy other artists that we might know the names of that they trained that are familiar to us? You mean how to do makeup? Yes, yes, yes. Like any other makeup artists beyond your family. Well, certainly they, they worked alongside many different makeup artists. Everybody brought something different to the table, but, uh, they, they collaborated and it, um, there's something that was known as a powder puff war in the, in the early 1930s too, oh. which was uh, Helena Rubenstein, Elizabeth Arden, and the oh. Westerners, um, Max Factor too. But uh, I, I think for the most part, everybody just did something just a little bit different. Um, and certainly they had different cosmetic lines and, and maybe there was a grab for power um, over the assertion of who was who was king in cosmetics, but uh, they certainly reigned over Hollywood and were known as the makeup mafia. They were at every major studio. Wow. I mean, yeah, you've got a lot of different coverage there with a lot of different stars, a lot of different star contracts or studios, a lot of different movies. Um, so your great-grandfather then is Earn. Right. Right. Um, are there any movies that he did or any works that he did in film that really stand out to you that you feel that you're just amazed by or feel connected to or appreciate? Well, an awful lot in film noir, which I think is really important. Um, yeah. So that whole genre of doing film, um, he had certainly worked with Tra- Charles Lawton an awful lot then in film noir at, at RKO. Oh. So you'll you'll see a lot of this significant work. Um, he was great at doing beauty makeup um, and he was known to have the finest hand. Now I've seen some of the work up close that he had done in photographs and you can see these fine pencil strokes of when he was doing old age makeups that just up close, you can see the lines, but it's um, to be able to see how well they were penned. I think it could rival any name. It's it, it was, I, I would challenge anybody else to be able to do the work that he had done um, in some of the old age makeups today by any measure. Oh, for sure. Okay. So this just popped in my head. I don't want to like sound stupid. But <laughs> we were talking earlier about um, a couple of favorite movies and I brought up Giant. Were, was your family part of Giant? I was just curious. Well, uh, so Patricia was the hairdresser. Okay. Got it. Okay. I was curious because when you brought up aging, it just, I know that that movie was unique and that they aged them up. Whereas I think in some movies their age, like when there's a change of time, there's aging down. Um, so I was just curious, but what was that like? Uh, do you know any information on Patricia working on that film and what that was like? Well, you know, they're certainly out in the elements and that makes it a lot more difficult too. Um, I, what, from, from what I've read, it's hard to, age these gorgeous actors and actresses of that time. Um, and it just, I think just to make sure that they had the consistency from scene to scene made it a little bit more difficult. 
um, again, just being out in the elements, but they, these are the pros and they certainly had wonderful canvases to work on by working with Clark Gable and Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so circling back to person earn really quick and just makeup trends and beauty standards. One thing that I didn't really realize was that they came up with the seven basic face shapes and how to apply makeup depending on your face shape. I, I need to know the history of that. Do you know how they came up with that and what some of those details are depending on your face shape? Well, so starting this makeup department, hairdressing department, and establishing uh, the industry in Hollywood, they're also trying to create a scientific method and approach to help to teach others. Hmm. They're looking at Michelangelo and you know, they're seeing how he's divided man and you can use some of their drawings. You can understand where, where maybe they had the principles that they derived from. But by establishing the seven basic face shapes, then what they're trying to determine is that there is a method and a reason for putting on makeup the way it should be applied. So you, as a consumer, you're not going to be able to go to Clinique in 1917 and go and buy um, your black honey lipstick. You're going to have to learn how to do it yourself. And you're probably going to teach somebody else that you're close with. So you're going to spend some time experimenting in your own home on how to apply the makeup. And you would see it in a periodical. You might buy something in 1935 that looks like this. Gosh. A little pamphlet. Um, it's called the Makeup Guide. But what it did was just break down. Um, you had There was a, a little wheel that you might have used. And then you would have had these charts. So you could also measure the distance of your face and find the correct placement so you would have true loveliness. Oh my gosh, I need one of those. That sounds amazing. That's truly incredible because I mean, that is establishing oval versus square versus diamond and all these other face shapes. I feel like we're all looking for in our faces today. So it's still used today and you know, it's used, um, maybe we've broken it down to five basic face shapes. A lot of that is used in hairdressing and um, that's the way we wear our hair. Those are the glasses that we chose. The Westmore's coined the term eyewear as they were also picking some of the, the famous eyeglass shapes of that time period in the 1940s. And, and they're, they're setting the tone then of what it is that you should wear and why. So then a how-to, it's a reason why you're applying the makeup that you are. Um, Certainly some of it wrapped around has to do with greater loveliness or being attractive to the opposite sex and um, making sure that you are a fresh face for wartime. All of those things were really important about uh, just the spirit of creating a, a general sense of character for yourself to bring your best self forward. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said for that. And that's something I kind of appreciated when I was lightly looking into the seven basic face shape origins. Because I feel like nowadays there's such an um, emphasis on not masking your beauty, but enhancing your beauty with makeup. And I feel like that really aligns with that. It's not like, okay, Marilyn Monroe's the it girl. We all have to have that face shape look like her. It's really kind of embracing what traits you have and then going from there. To me, that's really special. Right. It's teaching how to, how to play up your, your best features, um, how to frame your face with eyebrows, how important your lip shape is. And, you know, we see that morph all the time and um, beauty has definitely been broadened. I, I, feel, which is great. I mean, uh, what they were just trying to do is show someone how to apply cosmetics when cosmetics had not existed really before in the marketplace. Here's why you need them. Here's how you would use them. Here's where you would place them. That way there was no question on uh, buy this and I don't know what to do with it from here. Um, the, the eyebrow shapes, that was my great grandfather who helped to create the the eyebrow shapes and and delineate those really um, so person urn were the two that came up with the face shapes 
That is so cool. So then that influenced like eyebrow shapes and mm-hmm. that. So interesting because I feel like people also look to what stars are wearing both that time and now, but, um, but definitely back in old Hollywood days to see what the eyebrow shape is and how they're going to apply their own eyebrows. Sure. What, whatever's old is new and new again. <laughs> soap brows coming back and um, thin eyebrows and, you know, it's thick the next. And- <laughs> It's, it's hard to keep up with the best approach I think is to do what you're comfortable and doing. And, um, you can use these old tools as a guide and, um, and know where they came from. Uh, you know, I think it's exciting when I found that, um, I could look that up and see that it was at the hands of a Westmore. Yeah. Um, that always has um, a, a great feeling for me. It feels like a real treasure. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a favorite, trend or technique that was used by your family back in the day that you see coming back now besides soap brows? Mm. You know, they were masters at contouring. Who are amazing. And, um, they, you know, she, she really has coined that now, but, um, they were doing it well before. And you look at television makeup. I mean, when I was researching my family, what I found was that they had worked on collectively over 25 films, television shows, and specials. Um, that body of work in itself just blew me away. Now, um, if I look at the television makeup and what early television makeup looked like, it was horrific and horrible. However, <laughs> it was necessary then with the difference between black and white and how, how the shadows and contours of the face then appeared. So if you, I think, ever saw what it really looked like, it was like a mapping of the face. But that is like the contouring that you actually see um, individuals do with layers and layers of makeup. Um, the Westmores felt like less is a little bit more. That's cool. Yeah, I think um, if we if we look back on what their makeups were like, they used only a few colors. It's um, a quick makeup and it's not hours and hours and layers of, of things, but the, the television makeup definitely looked like a mapping of contouring and highlight. So interesting. Well, that kind of makes me think, um, you know, and over time, the cameras that are used change, the technology of what the actual filming material is changing. And your family worked for so many different decades. Was there anything major that they documented that was difficult to adjust to with maybe different cameras or technologies that were coming out? Yeah, well, if you look at film itself and how it changed, so you go from black and white then into color. So Technicolor and the advancement. So the Westmore certainly worked on pancake makeup, Technicolor makeup, pancake makeup for Technicolor. There's a whole chart that has been um, um, saved that um, illustrates then the color palette then that is used. And then as you see that the film has changed, there are different speeds of film. And then some of the film has like a different orangey or pink tint to it. So as that is introduced, now we have to adjust the makeup and um, different colors are being used. You can see as you come into from the 1950s and then into the 60s, how different film looked. So they were definitely challenged. Yeah. The thing that I think sideswiped them the most was the introduction of television. Wow. Okay. So what specifically about the introduction of television kind of shook the world up for them? People stopped going to the movies. Yes. Yes. That's right. Okay. So that makes sense. How do you survive the war? And now television just came in and like swept the, their feet out from underneath them. So I think, you know, there was just a scramble and um, in the film industry to change and pivot and figure it out and make movies exciting and reasonable to go back and and be a reason to go out with your family. The other thing is uh, rock and roll music. Oh, okay, very cool. Now you see an influence on uh, makeup hairdressing trends. Yeah. I think the film industry, television. So again, your influence isn't as great as it was. Those things must have been very difficult then for the ego, I imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, I'm thinking back to the emergence of television and 
like 3D movies are beginning to be brought out. And I'm kind of like, okay, so do you have to do anything different there? It's just, yeah, I can imagine there were a few different things that you had to think of when you were trying to make it more exciting. Is there any evidence or any concrete examples that you can think of where you're like, okay, that was a major risk or that was a total change in makeup style or what they were used to, to kind of bring that excitement back to the makeup portion of film? Well, I think because they were the heads of the department, they all had total control over that. And um, certainly working with one another to try to figure out (laughs) what was next. (laughs) Um, They all seemed very competitive too with one another. So I'm sure one wasn't going to let someone else come up with something new and exciting without um, mirroring and matching that (laughs) to some degree. uh, Consider it a challenge, which is, um, I, I think, how they all acted. That made me think of another question I had about, you know, I can imagine there's some family rivalry. Everyone's very, very, very good at these crafts. Were there any major sort of controversy or scandals that you can speak to that arose while working in this field together? The twins were pitted against each other from the very beginning by their father. And their Mm. father, they had a lot of problems with too very early on. So I think the scandalous... Um, moment of their father actually committing suicide in 1931, which has been very difficult oh. for my great grandfather. Um, I did not know that. I'm so sorry. That's so sad. Um, it's tragic. So he must have felt like he was being overtaken by his sons, all being truly successful within motion pictures and all well received. And so at the brink of where Ern is about to receive this award, the first award given to a makeup artist by a newspaper, and they're going to call him the king of makeup. And I think this really just yeah. set it in stone then for. Um, my two times great-grandfather, George, who felt like probably compelled that he was the father of this makeup and hairdressing industry. And now his sons had overtaken him. So he drank mercury and it took him 10 days to die. And I think that was very scandalous at the time and drove Earn to drink um, after that and um and a suicide attempt as well so here he had he was at the very top of his game and just suffering inside from this uh, uh being pitted against his brother and 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 you know maybe been made to feel like he was accountable for his father's demise oh my gosh do you find that there was any healing that happened with the different rivalries that came up or pitting well, against each think, other um i can realize then again from studying the history as i can see then in about 1935 they're working together again they're actually working from 1931 to 1935 with max factor they have a purse earn wig studio within the max factor studios they're selling they're collaborating they're working together they're they're vacationing on Catalina Um, and they're having a great time with one another. And I think when they were leaning on each other, they were at their best. They were able to create the house of Westmore salon that's on sunset Boulevard. And now they're already planning their world takeover of um, this Mecca of beauty that they had created where all the stars would convene and to have their makeup done. So I think that's an important part and a pivotal moment. And then we see them later on in their years, um, probably in the 1950s, and Earn had been offered the job at Universal Studios. And then we see his brother take him out the night before to celebrate where he had um, not been drinking and took him out to go and drink. And then he missed his interview and appointment at Universal Studios, where then first then shuttles in the younger brother, Bud Westmore, to take over. Wow, um, oh, that's fascinating. And it's sad, but you think about the rivalry that must have occurred there. Um, that's almost like really bad blood between them at that time. So something else pivotal oh, really? before that probably did happen. I don't know what it is. Um, I hope to find out in my research somewhere that I'll find a letter <laughs> or something. Um, but sad because what we see is that when they were all together, they did their best. Yeah. 
So you mentioned Bud. I, let's touch upon the the kind of younger brothers of the six. So Wally, Bud, and Frank. What were some of the movies they worked on? Did they specialize in anything in particular? And what were some of their um, specialties? Oh gosh, well Wally, he must have had so much fun because he was working on all those Elvis movies too. But right, oh, I love probably those. what he's best known <laughs> for um, his work on uh, on Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Uh, a very early 1931 version of Alice in Wonderland. Truly, truly, truly amazing work that he did there where he actually didn't also trademark some of the facial features. So he made these actors into Tweedledee and Tweedledum and and then made a mask that articulated um, with the facial features of the actor that was inside. So they were able then, however he hooked up these um, connecting points. Then in this mask, he was able to make these foam masks speak and show the features and the, um, and the feelings. So that was really amazing. You know, every Paramount film at that time was done by Wally. So it's hard to just, um, name any of them. But Frank then, uh, known for My Geisha and then also his work on the 10 commandments. Another a lot of people in that movie <laughs> and a lot of different makeup in, you have to in do. In the middle of the desert. So he's out there, um, uh, uh, his friend, Cecil B. DeMille, and they're making this film. Yeah. And um, he's doing a cast of thousands in the element. Yeah. Okay. So that makes me think, do you find that when they were working on historical pictures, like Ten Commandments or the likes, did they have to do a lot of research then for what that makeup looks like in different times, different time periods yeah. and places? Yeah, they definitely did. Um, the, the research that went into their work, they did drawings. Um, they worked hand in hand with the director to make sure that it was um, all approved. All those makeup tests are done previously before going on location as well. So um, there's a lot of copious note-taking and they were all amazing artists too. I've seen some of the sketches and uh, wow, these are, it's great. That's incredible. Okay. So with the story earlier, you mentioned Bud then goes to Universal. Right. Okay. So what was he known for at, at Universal? Did he work on anything in particular, have any noteworthy sure. makeup well, moments? He had a 27 year career at Universal and he actually made, um, with his team, the creature from the Black Lagoon. So, oh, that's, I mean, that's really impressive. And I've makeup. Seen some of the conceptual drawings, and I know he worked with others on the suit that was worn. So, I've actually had the opportunity to interview one of the actors who played the land version of the creature from the Black Lagoon, Ben Chapman, years ago. Um, oh, he cool. sat down with me. It was really great to get a chance to hear from him what it was like to wear the suit. But this was the largest latex suit had, that had ever been made. So um, the, the mold was made, the drawings were done, and um, and then sculpted by this team and, and all put together. But uh, that definitely was under Bud's department. Wow, that's amazing. I have so many movies where I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, yes, yes, yes. And then there are um, other ones where like Alice in Wonderland, I'd never seen that one before. Now it's immediately on my list. Some extra pictures too, but you can take a look at my website because I think I do have some of them up there on westmoresandhollywood.com. Um, Bud Westmore was also known for doing the makeup for the very first Barbie. And when I think about that world fame that what? the Westmores had achieved in 1935, then I think about the significance of him changing and shaping the way that we feel about beauty and glamour then as children and we're playing with Barbie and we're learning about this new teen fashion doll and and he created the makeup for it. Wow that's amazing I mean I look back to the original Barbie the iconic the bathing suit one with the red lip and I mean that it's just ingrained in my mind so that's really special to have that legacy that influences so many people's images of beauty, glamour, fashion, that they're drawn to things that resonate with them and that they want to incorporate into their own beauty routine and that you're capable of doing it. Right. You hit the nail on the head. I think um, shaping our idea of what beauty is 
and how beauty is achieved. This was something that the family was well known for. And then stepping into the special effects too. And you think about how they have shaped our ideals of what we believe uh, life not on earth looks like. <laughs> yeah, and that's true. My cousin true. Michael has um, created all these aliens for the Star Trek series. And, and I think it's amazing what he's been able to dream up. And I know that he's used um, encyclopedias of lizards and fish and cool. um and you just think about how he melded those ideas together to create something that lived on a planet, not ours. Uh, it's an extraordinary mind and um, he's fascinating to me. Yeah. Inspiration is everywhere. And kind of like we said, yeah, they're ingraining this beauty possibility into society. Um, did they have their own cosmetic line? How did that come to be? And you mentioned a little bit earlier that the Westmore Salon, the house of Westmore Salon. What what was that? And what did a day in the life of the Westmore Salon look sure. like? So in 1935, they opened the first uh, Salon of Beauty. That's the um, Westmore Salon, or also known as the House of Westmore. With that, they also created their own first cosmetics. And then they were going to bring those to market. Typically, wow. when it first came out, this was something that the stars were buying. So it probably cost like $1.35 to buy your yeah. pancake makeup, a powder, a lipstick, uh, maybe a cream. And the packaging was extraordinary. It's milk glass. It's, it's um, painted enamel and it's brass. So it's embossed brass. So um, this is before the war. And uh, this yeah. would have been something that looked like an event when you put it on. I would imagine that you're ha you have this on your dressing table and it looks like something very impressive and you're holding it in your hand and the, the bottles are really heavy and they're just gorgeous. And I, I think I showed you this one. I didn't bring the other one um, down, but uh, you see this art deco shape and then um, the labels oh, are so pretty with their, um, with their crest on it. So um, what they're doing is establishing then who they are in makeup. And now they're offering this to the public. So they start to sell it uh, through these, using you know, a tool like this. So you have this makeup guide and now you're going to know how to use the cream blush and the foundation. Were they then, okay, so nowadays the makeup industry is so saturated with so many different brands and influencers attached to them. And I'm looking back to, you know, this time, this golden age of Hollywood time. And I feel like I kind of remember just from my own, just for fun research, certain ads of makeup coming out. And like you said, the Westmores weren't really super highlighted um, in the very initial parts of the beginning of the Hollywood eras for their makeup artistry. So how do people know about them? I don't know if that makes sense or if I'm asking that right, but how do they sort of market that they were associated with the stars and they got these pamphlets out and then people could then look like these we movie stars? We were working with a marketing firm and what they did is they did lots and lots of articles and ads. So in your McCall's uh, magazine, you would open that up and then it would have um, the Westmore ad in there with the movie. So the was associated oh. with the movie is wearing the Westmore makeup and then the Westmore brothers are showing you how to use it in the perfect makeup guide. <laughs> they reiterated <laughs> this over and over and over because it wasn't like it's rocket scientists. What they were saying was that this is the way that you do it. This is the Bible of how you're going to be putting it on because these are the seven basic face shapes and, and everybody else who at that time followed suit and you saw things that were very similar. Max Factor did the same thing. Um, and so again, they weren't necessarily in competition with Max Factor makeup because almost all the studios were using Max Factor makeup. They're um, endorsing Max Factor makeup in the studios as well. They're buying Max Factor makeup, but in the, um, in the arena of, of cosmetics then uh, for drugstores, then they are selling the tools 
of how to use the makeup along with it. Because imagine you can, you're gonna go to the counter, you're probably gonna speak with someone who's somewhat knowledgeable, but she's been trained using that Westmore Perfect Makeup Guide. That is so cool. Oh my gosh. I just, you know, I think about like my own love of makeup and it's like a ritual, you know, it's really soothing to be able to sit down with your makeup. So I think to have experts showing you how to do that, that would have been such a cool opportunity back in the day. Shapes are showing you how to do it in the perfect place. So if you, you're right, determining what face shape that you have, um, by using the the wheel, but in the measurement tool, but you're the one who's applying it based on your needs. And, and you see that they had like five or six products that didn't have, <laughs> didn't have a whole line <laughs> of 20 different products. And, and, um, so the simplicity of it though, is uh, key for their success. Very cool. Okay. So I feel like this empire has now built over the years. I know that there's more generations of Westmore artists. So your cousins, for example, who kind of came after this 1917 through 1970s artist who then took over the reins of the Westmore family legacy? Well, well you see the great work from uh, my cousin Marvin and my cousin Michael and my cousin Mont. So they're my third cousins um, and they are Mont seniors. That's the oldest Westmore. They're his children. Uh, you know, nothing has brought me more extraordinary joy, I think, than to actually sit down with each one of them and be able to show them videos or um, recordings of their father. Um, they never got to meet. Oh. You see, he, um, he died when at 30, 39. So he died very young oh, when so they young. were very, very young. So two or three years old. Um, but to be able to share those things with uh, Mike and Marvin were uh, to me some of the best moments because again if you do all the research you find all the information out if you hoard it all for yourself it's good <laughs> but to be able to share it with somebody else and say look what I found and this is your dad and and um, I bet you've never seen it either um, I got to spend a little bit of time with Mont Jr. before he passed away too and um, I just you know, I delighted in the time that I got to spend with him and talk with him and just to be able to share those moments. But he was the makeup artist for Joan Crawford and for Paul Newman. Just his work alone is, again, it just, these things blow me away. But I'm in awe of all three of those third generation men. They did amazing work and um, each of them had illustrious careers all um well Mike's retired now Marvin passed away a couple of years ago and then Mont had passed oh, before him but we have then um children that are fourth generation and it's sad because we just oh uh, one gosh. of our own just uh, announced her retirement so Pamela Westmore just I think she's retiring now this year um and Kevin is still in the business he works in television and he'll be retiring this year can we um, oh, wow. closest cousin, she retired, um, this past year too. So, you know, this fourth generation, we all, Frank had always wanted to make sure that there was always another Westmore. And so we're just working very hard to see if there are any other family members that want to come in and take over the business. And, um, I know Candy has worked with, um, some of our younger cousins too. Oh, the, the makeup. We have so much to learn from this family. And um, again, just to be left this legacy, it's so important to me to make sure that I take care of it and make sure that it's honored in the ways that it should be, um, to make sure everyone knows as much as they can. And I just, I'm so glad that you were so interested in the Westmore family and saw their name over and over when you were watching those films and wondered who they yeah. were. Um, it's people like you that help propel our family name. And I'm just, I'm grateful. Oh my gosh. Well, I've just been simply enchanted to speak with you and hear these stories because I mean, that's magic to me to hear the making of all these pieces of art that I so appreciate and that touched my life and touched so many others and make you think and reflect. And it sparks so much and makeup is such an important part of it. And the Westmore family has been obviously from our discussion crucial. 
in part of this ripple effect. So I feel so, so lucky. Um, Okay, before we wrap up, do you have any favorite makeup artists or movies that you're personally impressed by today and that maybe you think your family would be also impressed by the makeup work? Oh, wow. That... <laughs> A lot of questions. I know. I'm sorry. Um, I, I sadly, I'm unprepared to answer that. But um, I, you know, where we're going with makeup and, and um, what's available now, it just is so much fun. And I just love that people are able to play. And um, I think Instagram is saturated with, um, with makeup artistry and, and I can't help but get hooked into it. I have some favorites, of course. I love um, the brand Glossier. That's one of one of the best, um, I think, now. And then um, I got to spend a little bit of time with Lisa Eldridge and her lipsticks. If you haven't ever tried them, are like out of this world. The payout on the lipstick is just phenomenal. And um, oh my gosh, stop! She's like my makeup <laughs> favorite. I her. Uh, Mary Greenwell, like I just, well, I, I could watch I their videos all day long. <laughs> I love what they're doing to bring back the old and um, Gabriella has done a wonderful job with that brand. So th- those are some of my favorites um, for sure. I'm lucky to have this platform to be able to talk about the family. I, so many of my other cousins are in, um, in the film industry now or in television as producers. Um, They work in the industry in finance. And again, we have a lot to learn from our own family history. And um, I think that the possibilities are endless. I hope that everybody will go and take a look at some of these museums when uh, we have exhibits there and learn a little bit more about the very early pioneering days of uh, how the West was won in makeup <laughs> in Hollywood, where stars were created. Most were made up by the Westmores. Ah, oh, that is so amazing. Thank you so, so much for your time today. I am so, so grateful hearing all of your stories. I know that everyone else is. Hopefully you all enjoyed learned as much as I did. I mean, my mind is just overflowing with information and movies I want to either check out or recheck out. Um, Just so cool. If you like this episode, please subscribe, maybe share with a friend, give us five stars. If you want to reach us on social media, you can find us at Old Soul Movie Podcast on Instagram, the Old Soul Movie Podcast on Facebook, and Old Soul Movie Pod on Twitter. You can let us know if you have any questions, maybe for me or Christiana about the Westmore family. Do you want to leave your information? Oh, I'd love for you to check out westmoresofhollywood.com. And you can follow me on cbenson015 on Instagram. Follow my cousin Candace Westmore on Instagram too. And we love to post pictures and old stories. Um, she has a lot more to share uh, from her, <laughs> her career too. But um, this has been great. And I can't, uh, let's do a movie sometime. Yes. Oh my gosh. Absolutely your books. It's going to happen. So stay tuned, everyone. Thank you so much again, Christiana. And we will see you next time, everyone on the old soul movie podcast.